Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a strength coach. Um, I also got a bunch of events coming up. I told everybody about like the Speaker Strength Festival, things like that. So always something going on. Come check us out. Cool. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute. I teach for Rocky Mountain University, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and I'm just finished up my last day snowboarding in Tahos, New Mexico, where I'm nice. still at. <laughs> I am Ryan Muncy, uh, nutritionist, former gym owner turned writer, podcaster, and uh, high performance specialist. You're going to fit in nicely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Looking cool. forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me here. All right. We have two little bits of mail. Uh, one little bit of science, but we're going to keep that pretty brief today because we want to get to Ryan's origin story. And uh, after the break, everyone, our topic is going to be the, the mental and emotional side of training and recovery. So I think we, we've always over the years tried to emphasize a little bit more on the mental side of things. So this is your opportunity to get in with that. Okay. Um, first mail. This is from Bob. He says, uh, hi, guys. I want to thank you for years of dedication to Iron Radio. It's my favorite podcast. I listen to every episode. Uh, I look forward to each new episode every week as well. Uh, I admit that over the years I have been a quote-unquote deadbeat listener since I haven't contributed to the funds drives. However, I would like to offer an idea to assuage my guilt. <laughs> nice. Um, basically, he's, he's suggesting affiliate links with Amazon and that sort of thing. So, Bob, I will follow up on that. We do a little bit of that with our Iron Radio store, but it's not something that, honestly, I've given enough attention to. I'd like to get one of our you know, Iron Radio interns to sort of uh, spruce up our store a little bit too and integrate it with, you know, uh, the larger level stuff that Phil does and everything else. But um, he said, I, I think it may be a way to bring extra funds to Iron Radio to support the great work that you do. Um, I, for one, would do it all the time. So thank you for reading and thank you for years of advice. I look forward to many more, Bob. So it's a nice email. Thanks, Bob. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah. Worried about, uh, you know, concerned about our financial <laughs> stability. <laughs> I think we're okay. We keep it pretty uh, low end, which is why we could keep doing this. Um, the next is from Grant. Uh, Mike, you know Grant Slack. Grant's been on the show I was before. I say, is it Grant Slack? Yeah. <laughs> he sent me a thing. He says, hey, Dr. Lowry, uh, I hope I'm not bothering you. I was just listening to uh, a show. I'm pretty behind on the coffee conference you went to, and I had a question about cold brew coffee. From what I have read, it seems to have higher caffeine content, especially the way I brew it, haha. Uh, but do you know what it does to some of the other bioactive compounds? I have not read much about that. Uh, I know that the slower extraction rate of cold brew and less heat means you don't get quite the same absorption. Uh, and that's why cold brew tends to have a milder and slightly sweeter taste. I was just curious. Have a good day and talk later, Grant. So Grant's in medical school now. Um, 
definitely one of my past superstar students. I, I'm claiming him as one of mine, even though he was a biochem major. But Grant, the, the long story short, uh, I am curious about that very same thing. So we are doing a project this spring about that. We're going to take a, a fixed kind of beans. I think Phil and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but mm -hmm. we're going to brew it with like half a dozen different brew methods, cold brew, pour over, um, vacuum brew. You know, Mike and I saw those, some of those wild you know, things like yeah. that in the past, you know. Um, so we're going to brew it in many different ways. And this is relevant to listeners partly because, uh, well, you all know we like coffee. I like my coffee. I, and it's something I do in the lab. It's something I do before I work out. And uh, Mike is always sending me cool studies. I just got that one, Mike, by the way, about the better carbohydrate storage, the glycogen yeah, yeah. deposition. Uh, it just looks like a better all-around way to get your head in the game, to be topical, before a workout and enhance neuromuscular function and all that sort of thing. So I would want to know this myself, right? If I, if I go buy a cheap little pour-over or a French press, can I get more caffeine out of it? Or can I get some of these other things? Grant is alluding to one of hundreds of other compounds in coffee. Coffee's not just liquid caffeine. Uh, chlorogenic acid, caffeic acid. There's just a, a bevy of these things. And luckily, I know an analytical chemist. So we're going to ask a friend of mine, Jeff, to um, analyze you know, these different brew methods. And we're going to get like the pot-to-pot -pot variability. So basically, you can dose these things with more accuracy, right? If one brew method, like if you get a Chemex like I've got or a pour over, if that's better, you know, you, you make your cup of coffee before you lift and if you're gonna get more out of it for your nervous system or for antioxidant effects or carb metabolism, um, I would wanna know that. So we're gonna look into that very specifically, Grant. Um, I'm gonna try not to go off on a nerd tangent though. So, um, yeah, I was gonna tell you, Lonnie, that, um, <laughs> Long story short, I'm doing a physician stand helping with it on caffeine. And I just found this one came out in December 21st, 2017. Uh, the effect of time, roasting temperature, and grind size on caffeine and cholinergic acid concentrations in cold brew coffee. Oh, so if you perfect. look up the last name author, Fuller, um, I'll send that over to you. It's actually open access, too. And the short version is... The caffeine content looks to be a little bit higher, but they only ran looks like four samples. So yeah, and yeah. they went into all different aspects of the roasting and everything else. So yeah, that looks pretty interesting. Yeah, the the long story short from my end is some of these things go up and some go down with the the, the heat or the um, the time of roasting. I mean, this is a lot of stuff for. For Phil's man, you know, who would know better th than us, maybe we should get him on a little. I don't want people to get too bored with the food science, but always everything that we do. In fact, we just submitted two abstracts yesterday for the Dublin conference um, in June over in Ireland. And it's specifically about some of the psychometric effects and some of the compounds in the coffee and what it does to your hormones. And, you know, so, um, yeah, we're just trying to fine tune this so you can get the most out of your workouts, always with that sort of hairy workout mentality, right? Because that's going to affect your mood and your anticipation of it and all that kind of stuff as opposed to just having a cup of coffee when you wake up first thing in the morning, for example. So that pre-workout coffee stuff, um, that's a lot of people that are outside of lifting, they think that's odd. If you remember Mike at EB, there was that yeah. one salty old dog. He's like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I'm like, well, you know, that's what all yeah. the crazy kids are doing it these days. So um, <laughs> anyway, I have one last little bit quickly before we get to uh, uh, Ryan. 
the problem of curcumin and its bioavailability. Uh, could it enhance, let's see, could its gastrointestinal influence contribute to its overall health enhancing effects? This is advances in nutrition, f February 2018. I mean, now, this is, <laughs> this is so hot off the press, it's burning my hand. So <laughs> the idea here, they say uh, curcumin from the spice turmeric exhibits anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-cancer, antiviral, and neurotropic activity, and therefore holds promise as a therapeutic agent for several disorders. But uh, they talk about the barrier is its bioavailability. Um, so this review basically proposes that you don't, maybe you don't need to absorb huge amounts of it. I mean, you might only absorb single digit percentage, right, of a curcumin dose. And Mike and I have talked about that before. Um, but they're suggesting that a lot of its effects may be through your gut microbiome. So uh, hmm. people are probably getting sick of us talking about curcumin and the gut biome, but a lot of research is heading in this direction in the nutrition world, um, basically saying, you know, there's lots of these categories of gut health that then would affect your health, your mood, your nervous system. Uh, it, so it says the intestinal microbiota, intestinal permeability, gut inflammation, oxidative stress, and even different fungal, parasitic, or bacterial infections are all sort of affected by curcumin. And again, they go on to say the oral, the oral dose, 90% of it is excreted in your feces. So there it is, probably single digit, maybe up to 10% absorption. Uh, and they say, of course, there's been lots of attempts to increase its absorption. And Mike and I have been talking about this recently, but um, piperine, liposomes, nanoparticles, phospholipid complexes, structural analogs like turmeric oil, so they're always trying to think of ways to get it in you, into your bloodstream better. Um, but then it goes on to say, you know, the microbiota do many things. There's lots of two-way talk with the brain and the body and that sort of thing. So maybe the effects mostly happen in your gut. It says the microbiota regulates and manufactures neurotransmitters like serotonin and GABA. Uh, it has a bi-directional gut-brain communication that influences neurogenesis and synaptic plasticity. So um, maybe you don't have to absorb the full amount. Uh, and I think that's sort of where they're going with this. They say the microbiome can be affected by diet, antibiotics, sleep, and exercise. And I think we know a lot of that stuff. Uh, in several animal studies, curcumin has been shown to influence the diversity of your gut microbiota. They say when curcumin was added to a high fat diet, this is a rat study, the composition of the gut microbiota shifted more toward that of a lean comparison rat compared to what they had going on originally. So you can sort of get this favorable change. The conclusions in this, and I'll put a little figure uh, up on our Facebook listeners page, but that curcumin seems to influence the composition of our gut microbiota. It modulates intestinal permeability, right? You don't want too much of that. Uh, permeability. You want to keep certain things in your gut, in the gut, and not coming into your bloodstream. Uh, modulates uh, inflammation and oxidative stress and has an influence on various types of infections. Uh, moreover, curcumin was shown in one animal study to reduce even the anaphylactic response to food allergens. So I know a lot of people are cons concerned about, you know, gluten and any number of things as being allergenic. And then the curcumin may work through that way too. So interesting different ways that curcumin may work without actually getting much in your blood. Um, huh. So yeah, that's- What's your thoughts on that, Ryan, since I know you've worked with curcumin in the past and probably still do. 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You guys, you mentioned that you had talked previously about different ways that people are trying to increase bioavailability. Um, you know, with my experience at Natural Stacks, the Natural Stacks version of Curcumin um, is uh, it uses something called Novasol technology, and that's a patented form. Um, you know, so you can find that technology in either Natural Stacks. I know Solgar uses it, uh, but essentially, what they've done is taken curcumin and turned it into a liquid micelle so um, that puts it in a more bioavailable form and the body can absorb uh, i think the number was 185 times better absorption than a traditional curcumin powder wow um, and you guys may have talked about this previously on on other shows but you know if you're going to supplement with it make sure you're actually taking curcumin not turmeric because turmeric is only 3% by weight curcumin um so most people don't even know that part of it so you know don't bother taking turmeric or turmeric powder make sure it is curcumin and then yes look for ways that we can increase that absorption so um, you know, these liquid micelles, um, that Novasol technology is really fascinating. Um, of course, if you do take a powder, then, you know, something like the uh, black pepper, uh, that's why you always see that added. Uh, one of the most common questions we got uh, or that I heard with the natural stacks, the liquid micelle is, you know, why is there no black pepper added to this? And the answer is because it is a liquid micelle, you're increasing the absorption without needing that other component to do it. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. I, what caught my eye about that was the influence on neuroplasticity or even synaptic function, right? So whether it's yeah. central nervous system and mood and that sort of thing, or, or even peripheral, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to do a, a, a multi-week, multi-month study and, and look at things like stretch reflex or, you know, rate of force <coughs> development or things that might be neuromuscular and actually help a lifter, you know, because of the, these sort of neuro-supportive kinds of things that it, it might provide. So, um, yeah, I, I think when people ask me, like, in the last five or ten years, what, what's one of the biggest topics that we really didn't recognize as much before that's coming to the forefront in, a, you know, number of publications every year and that kind of thing? Curcumin is high on the list. It's one of the things that I, I sort of have some buy-in at this point. And I'm usually such a curmudgeon, you know, it takes quite a bit for me to get excited about something. So uh, that's why we talk about it quite a bit, I think. Yeah, I think in the future will be interesting, too, as we start to segment out antioxidants on their different effects um, in, in terms of like curcumin and green tea or ginger or things that may act more of at a hormetic stressor versus kind of the classical antioxidants like vitamin C you know, there's some scan research, but some data showing that they act in different ways. And vitamin C in high doses may blunt some of like the responses to adaptation, but other ones, green tea and berries and things like that, don't seem to have that same effect, even though they're all kind of lumped together as antioxidants. Yeah, it's such a broad, you know, yeah, category. Yeah. All right, Miguel, why don't you take the reins and let's learn about Ryan's beginnings here. Yeah, so we always like to go back into the, the origin story and just kind of give us some history of how you got into fitness and just how you got to where you're at right now. So fill us in. 
All right. So I grew up playing sports. I was an athlete my whole life. And uh, I went to college at Clemson University. I was not a good enough athlete to play sports there. So I had to fill that competitive void with something. And that was where I found the weight room. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a best friend who was a year younger than me in high school who actually got a track scholarship to Clemson. He was a high jumper. And I got to tag along with him at track practice because, let's face it, nobody cared about track and they didn't check to make sure that I was actually on the team. So <laughs> as, as long as I wore orange and didn't make anybody upset, they let me hang out. So, um, you know, I got to really see up close and personal, you know, what an elite human looks like. Uh, you know, they had guys on the track team then that went on to play in the NFL and uh, some sprinters who ran in the Olympics. So, you know, that was where I learned the biomechanics of running and a lot of the weight room stuff. And at the same time, I also realized that I was the only male in my family who was not diabetic and really started to kind of go down this rabbit hole of nutrition, uh, specifically around carbohydrates, blood sugar, insulin, um, and ended up changing my major. I wanted to do exercise physiology. Clemson did not have that. So I ended up doing food science and human nutrition. So when you guys went on the tangent about food science, that kind of perked up. Um, <laughs> so if we, if we want to do that, we can talk about that. But um, it's basically, uh, it's a dietetics degree. I could be a registered dietitian, but at the end of school, um, you know, to become an RD, I would have had to go off and do an internship. And I had that as one option. The other option, um, and this is something I hate talking about because it's just not me. It's so weird. But the other option was I could go to New York and be a fitness model. Um, so I did choose that option because it sounded a lot more fun than being in a clinical setting, uh, telling some guy who just had a heart attack that he can't eat McDonald's anymore. <laughs> but at, at some point, in college, you know, the, the curriculum was, you know, half nutrition stuff and half sciences. And, you know, in the science classes, and Lonnie, I'm sure you can relate to this, the science classes and then what you're taught in the nutrition classes just don't line up. And, and I just remember being incredibly frustrated with that, but also really frustrated with the lack of knowledge that the public had uh, about how to properly feed ourselves. Um, you know, I would go home uh, on breaks or on holidays and, and realize like how much of my new habits I had to explain to my parents and, and friends and, and how weird everybody thought everything was that I was doing. And um, I, I just quickly realized that that gap was a frustration for me and that I wanted to help people understand um, you know, all of the things that they needed to know to be able to eat and, and have the health and happiness that they wanted to have. So, um, you know, I, I realized then that I needed some sort of a platform to be able to help people and educate people in that sense. Um, and, and I honestly, I thought that moving to New York and becoming a successful model would give people a reason to, to listen to what I had to say. Um, that didn't turn out the way I expected it to. Uh, it's not really the industry I wanted to be in or, or the life that I wanted to live. So I did that for about nine months and then moved back home to Roanoke, Virginia. I uh, got a job as a personal trainer at a Gold's Gym there. And I joke and say that if there was an article published on T Nation or Elite Fitness prior to 2010, I've probably read it. Uh, I spent 
way too much time reading those articles and forums and um, I don't and not way too much time. It served me well. Um, and I ended up opening my own gym, House of Strength, in 2012 in Roanoke. Um, I did write for those sites for a few times and, uh, you know, got to write for men's fitness, men's health, um, sold the gym in 2015 and, uh, at the end of 2015, beginning of 2015, uh, I had the opportunity to, um, take over, uh, hosting the optimal performance podcast for natural stacks. And, and that's where I started working full time with them and, um, you know, sort of learned a whole lot more about the supplement industry and FDA compliance. And, you know, talking about curcumin, we'll use that as an example. Despite the fact that there are studies that show um, that curcumin can arrest cancer cells, you, know, you can't make that claim when you talk about curcumin as a supplement. So you know, there's a lot of frustration there, too, in terms of, you know, what we can talk about and um, or when I say we like what a supplement company can talk about. Now, you guys can talk about it. You can talk about those studies because you're not selling the supplement. But yeah. um, you know, that's that's a really frustrating thing there as well. Um, but that's so that's I'm trying to go through this quickly. So that takes us through 2016 uh, into 2017. Uh, last year, I wrote uh, a book uh, that will be coming out um, in February of 2018. And um, kind of to correspond with the book, um, you know, I've started my own podcast, Better Human Project, and parted ways with Natural Stacks, um, you know, so that everything I do with, with my book and this new show can kind of make sure that it's my audience and not overlapping with, you know, their audience as well. So. Uh, I think that's the, the shortest version I can give you of origin story. Nice. And do you mind talking about why you left the modeling industry or do you prefer just to skip that whole area of your life? <laughs> <laughs> no, we can talk about it. So, um, I mean, because we have know, a lot of people on here who do, you know, competitions and obviously Lonnie's done competitions in terms of the physique based yeah. sports too. And it's probably something I don't think many people have a inside look at per se. Right. Right. Um, I, I think looking back, there are a few different reasons, but, um, I think that the biggest thing was, let's just call it a, a Harvey Weinstein esque industry. Uh, okay. Um, I, I guess the part that I'll talk the least about, you know, I, I had opportunities to land high profile campaigns with brands that you'd love to have on your resume, but what I had to do to get them was not something that fit with my values. And sure. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really glad that I was in that place at 24 and after college, as opposed to 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Um, cause I'm not sure that, you know, those decisions would have gone the same way. Um, so, I mean, it, it is, I can easily understand how people find themselves in those situations and, and make decisions that they may later regret. Um, fortunately I was able to you know, say no and, and get out of those situations. Um, the other thing is just, um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember being in my apartment in New York and having a spreadsheet on my computer and, you know, if I eat this for meal three, then what is that going to do to the macros that I have remaining for meals four, five, and six? And, um, yeah, I just, it, it was, it was not the way that I wanted to continue to live my life. Um, both in terms of, you know, managing my macros to that degree. Um, but also, you know, literally being defined by how someone 
felt about the pictures of me that I would hand them in a casting. Uh, it was just, it was, it was really superficial, um, you know, really kind of, uh, maybe not selfish, but self-absorbed. You, you had to be, I mean, you're, you're trying to make money based on how you look. Um, and that, that just wasn't where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. You know, Ryan, yeah. I, I actually remember being at a photo shoot. There was, I, I'm not going to use his name, but it, it was sort of a cover shot. I was in Los Angeles and they were doing some pics of a, he's a male model slash bodybuilder. And I'll, I'm going to put bodybuilders in major quote there. Um, but I couldn't believe, I mean, hour after hour, the kind of prima donna, self-absorbed, you know, and a lot of the guys around that were lifters are just kind of rolling their eyes, you know, just, I, I don't mm. know. Like, I appreciate a little bit of the blue collar side, that kind of, you know, authentic, real kind of aspect that a lot of lifters have. And this guy did not have that, you know, and whether it was busting open his Tupperware, you know, and measuring stuff or fussing about the lighting or constantly looking at himself an hour after hour. And I mean, not to take anything away from, you know, modeling and that kind of stuff. But uh, in fact, Mike and I were just talking about some of the stories, you know, that we've seen in in journalism and stuff like that. And I can I, I guess I'm just saying I can totally appreciate you saying, you know, I I don't want that. <laughs> You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought I really thought and I guess this kind of speaks to some of the naivety going into it. But I, I really when I looked at the opportunity to go there and do that, I thought, OK, here's a chance to get paid to lift weights and, you know, build the physique that I want to build um, and potentially have the platform that I want to have to educate people. And. You know, like I said, when I got up there, that's not the reality of the situation. So, you know, it didn't last very long. Yeah, I think it's just also interesting to hear that from a, a male side, too, because most of the stories I've heard are from uh, females. But the handful of stories I've heard from males is it doesn't appear to be all that different either. You know, <laughs> and with females, I think males run into the same issue of depending upon, you know, your conditioning. Oh, you're you're too hard or you're too in shape, quote unquote, for this particular thing. But if you want to do this next project, you know, they get constantly pulled back and forth by all these external sources. And it's hard because mm -hmm. that's your income. That's also your livelihood. That's what you're doing to survive. And, oh, I can just imagine that that'd be incredibly difficult. And, you know, Ryan, <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say, ahead. I think you're, it was almost unfortunate that you had the level of education that you have because it's going to make it even worse for you in many ways right because you have yeah. say, like deeper higher meaning or purpose or plans for all this and some of the people around you they don't you can't make them understand that they haven't gone through the process and it you know like an old mentor of mine used to say the small bowl cannot contain the large bowl you know so, <laughs> right so you're right here's you you're talking to the small bowls you know and uh, yeah, not the same goals. Maybe I think it might actually made it harder for you in the long run to enter that after after college because, like you said, it doesn't it it feels shallow or um, sort of meat market kind of in a way. You know, like you're a commodity maybe or and I mean oh, I don't know oh, what absolutely. you experienced. Yeah, commodity is such a great word for it because I mean you go up there and I mean when I would go to the gym in college, I mean 
or, or I did some competitions and you're, you're a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And then you go to New York city and I mean, dime a dozen. I mean, you go to, a, you go to any given casting and there's, you know, 300 guys and like, well, why are they going to choose me? And it, it really is hard to, to kind of wrap your head around that. And you, it, it takes a special person to be able to go to hundreds and hundreds of those year after year and, and stay in that industry. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for people that, that can do that and not let it kind of mess with their psyche. Um, but you know, Mike, you made a great point. You know, I, I would go to some and like, I'd go to a, a high fashion type casting and yeah. you know, they, they give me pants to put on and walk. And you know, my, <laughs> my, my legs, I, I remember there was one, I, I it was either Gucci or Versace. I can't remember, but they, they had these like brown stretch pants and, and literally they just laughed and they're like, you look like sausages because, you know, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm tall. I'm, I'm like six one. And at the time I was about 180. Um, so pretty lean by bodybuilding standards or, or meathead standards, but you know, huge compared to like fashion. So I'd go, you know, I'd go to those and I'd be too big. And then I'd go to something like Nautica and, um, or men's health. And they're like, well, you're too young or you're too little. And, um, you know, it is, it's that constant back and forth. And, you know, a lot of, you know, to, to Lonnie's point, you know, a lot of guys, if, if I was too big, they might say, oh, well just don't eat for two days and go for a run. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not how I'm going to get smaller or, or lose a little bit of this mass. And, um, so yeah, yeah, it was, it was really weird and, pulled in a lot of different directions and um yeah i think in a way maybe i was maybe too smart but in a way um i'm, I'm glad that i was kind of at that point in my development you know even aesthetically i think it's funny the the values like and i know phil would agree with this but like a lot of power lifters and and competitive bodybuilders they're going to value stuff that maybe the male models it's not the look, you know, like you don't want huge ass, huge legs, big back, you know, as opposed to like more of the chest and biceps kind of look, you know, in, in my opinion, this is my bias and take this the best possible way. But, you know, a lot of these male, they're so anterior dominant. They're kind of the, what I would call a kite physique. Like you can't be too thick or too deep, you know, um, but they yep. want some width to your shoulders, but they don't want your legs and your butt and your back very big. And that's like that's blasphemous to me to even say that, you know, like <laughs> right. even aesthetically, right. it doesn't always match, you know? Right. Yeah, you're right. There's a, a much different look that the people in the casting department want versus, you know, I, I consider myself a meathead then and now, and, you know, I was not going to change the way I trained to build a body that they wanted. You know, I was, I, even now I can't find shirts that fit, you know, my lats and the length of my arms. Um, you know, it's, it was just, it was always weird, you know, when they would put clothes off the rack on me, nothing ever fit. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I appreciate that. We get to get a little sneak peek inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, we'll take a break here and then we'll get into the topic of the day. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is 
reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. So we're back from break here. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and we're talking today with Ryan Muncy about the more kind of the mental and emotional side of recovery, which I think is something that isn't talked about a whole lot. Um, so how did you want to focus on this part, Ryan? What kind of, was there any sort of event or anything that made you go in that direction? Well, I think... You know, we talked about this in the origin story briefly that, you know, I have worked as a nutritionist and, and personal trainer, strength coach, and, and then owned a gym for about three years. I've seen a lot of people um, go through whatever type of transformation, whether it, you know, be sports performance or adult population looking for fat loss or um, trying to put muscle on uh, people in the physique and bodybuilding world. Whatever that pursuit is, there's a very strong emotional tie to our fitness goals. And if we're not careful, we can fall into you know, this state where those goals and those pursuits, can we can allow that to define us. And it's a very slippery slope when that starts to happen because then you start to you know, approach workouts um, in, in a different way, you're, you're no longer doing the thing, um, you know, out of love or, or out of, um, you know, patience, you, you start to press, you start to, um, you know, everything kind of becomes tied up in, in an immediate outcome or, or the, um, you know, success or failure of a certain goal. And, 
um, you know, then that sort of creates this negative cycle, um, kind of self-perpetuating cycle. And, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed over the years in working with people is that interestingly, the people who got the most results or, or the best results were the people who didn't have that emotional attachment. It was almost like the less people cared, the more the, re- the results came. And it wasn't that they didn't care. It was just that they never fell into that trap of training based on emotion or, or training based on, you know, how they felt in any given moment. Um, you know, it was the, the person who stayed the course and, and just trusted the program, trusted the process. Um, so I think that was, you know, sort of realizing that was sort of the genesis for, for wanting to explore this concept a little bit deeper. You think part of that is kind of the old statement of, I guess, trying to love yourself first and not try to find that in the gym. So you're kind of feeling that you're a whole complete person first and not trying to fill some gap by some change or something that you're seeking in the gym. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know that when I first got into, you know, heavily into fitness, you know, I I wasn't as evolved or emotionally intelligent as a human. Um, and, and I felt like the way that I could portray myself to the world, um, as I wanted to be seen was to create this exterior facade that people would see and then begin to treat me, you know, as the person that I saw myself. Now we realize, you know, as we evolve that, that, that doesn't cut it. You actually have to become that person. Um, and I think that in all of our fitness journeys, I think most of us or or most people will eventually get to that point. I think especially, you know, listeners of, of this show. Um, but you know, we know a lot of people that, that don't, get to that point in their evolution. But yeah, I, I think it's very easy to sort of see fitness or, or weightlifting, powerlifting, strongman, whatever, you know, area of it you're most drawn to. Um, it, it's easy to sort of see that as a way to, um, you know, kind of develop that, but it's not. And, and, and we have to kind of realize that and figure that out. And, and you're right, that does sort of come from understanding, respecting, loving yourself, you know, for who you are. And then, oh, this lifting thing is just something I do because I enjoy it. Yeah, very cool. Uh, what do you see, Phil, in, in your gym? Does that kind of match? I know your crowd's a little little bit different in where the location and stuff you are too, but what do you see? Yeah, I mean, as far as, geez, I mean, med- the mental aspect, I mean, we were talking about this the other day. I had a, uh, uh, a seminar and the thing about being a strength coach, I think, is what people don't realize is you, you have to be like part psychologist and oh, part yeah. psychiatrist with your athletes. <laughs> um, many times it depends on the athletes, but a lot of times the whole mental side of it is bigger than the rest. Um, like I'm dealing with an athlete now that's getting ready to go compete at the Arnold and like all the lifts are there Yeah, if, they're, if her head's behind it and if we can get her, her mind recovered and, you know, like you're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, it can be huge. It depends on the athlete, though. I mean, so. Yeah. What do you see, Lonnie? I know with nutrition, you see a lot of, I want to say more of the psychological side too. That may be why I, 
I just gravitated toward academia, you know, so I can <laughs> teach students instead of work with individuals. I, I've got many thoughts about that myself. <laughs> but, you know, one thing that I've kind of developed over the years is, like, I, I see it in exercise science uh, more so than in dietetics, but oftentimes in fitness, uh, students are taught, and this is one of the reasons I, I would have Phil come do, like, a Skype lecture to my graduating seniors often is we like to do you know, the assessments and the programming and just impart information as if that's going to automatically take root, you know, and there's not much on the counseling side or how ready is someone to change or how confident are they? Like, what are some of those behavior mod aspects and even recipes? You know, people kind of laugh sometimes, you know, oh, Lonnie, that's that's sort of um, peripheral. And, you know, you, you, you took these like uh, food science related cooking courses, you know, toward your license to practice and this and that. And, and I'm like, but recipes are the linchpin, right? Between knowledge and action in many ways. You know, if you can't, if you don't have any skills in the kitchen or you don't, you don't even know what you like, you eat like the same five foods in, you know, repetition like that. Um, you know, it, it's hard for those people to kind of break out of that and, and make the kind of changes that you hope they make. You know, and, and whether that's strength or, or eating or whatever, right? There's always that, the psychological aspect, uh, whether it's emotional investment and, and weight management, you know, and some of the concerns that those people have or body image or, you know what I mean? We can't just impart information and pretend that that's the end of the process. Imparting information is the beginning, not the end of getting a, an athlete or a, or a, a, a mom, middle-aged mom to you know, to get the kind of um, self-actualization that they want out of it. So that's my yeah. take on that. that, that that's absolutely, yeah, I was just going to say that's absolutely, um, it's just, it's so true and so accurate. And, and that's like, that's the thing that I'm exploring in, you know, uh, th this book that's coming out. It's, it's called Fuck Your Feelings. I hope we can cuss on the show. Oh, yeah. um, but essentially it's, you know, it's a neuroscience explanation of, of why some people succeed and some people don't. And it is, you know, how do we take control of that mental side? How do we master our mind and accomplish any goal? Because like Lonnie just said, it's not a lack of information that prevents us from accomplishing whatever we want to accomplish. It, it, there's a quote, I, I forget who said it, but it's something like, you know, if, if it was simply a matter of information, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. You can get online and find anything you want to find, but it, it comes down to the, the implementation of this stuff and, and how we spend our time and what our daily habits and practices look like. Um, you know, and that's the thing that fascinates me. Why do you have some people who, you know, can become Olympic athletes or, or special forces guys or, uh, you know, world champion power lifters, um, you know, but then there's other people who say they want to accomplish these things and then they fall short of it. Um, and, and to me, and what I found in my research and experience is that it just comes down to you know how you spend your time and, and what choices you make on a daily basis. And so so that's really what the title of the book means. Um, you know, there's a, a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, who found that 95 percent yeah. of our decisions are made based on how we feel in that moment. Mm -hmm. So if you're constantly making a choice based on how you feel at that moment, the odds of you staying the course or or following through on this long-term plan uh, they're gonna the, the, uh, those odds are gonna decrease and the the longer it takes you to reach that goal the bigger the plan um, you know 
the more of those little touch points or, or decision points you're going to have where you either go the right way or you go the wrong way. Um, and, you know, it's if you look at anybody like a Richard Branson or an Oprah or an Olympian, um, you know, they've found success because they've figured out how to, you know, override their biology and do what they're supposed to do, regardless of how they feel in that given moment. Yeah, I think the quote was Derek Sivers. I could be wrong on that, but that sounds right. Um, yeah, Damasio stuff is really fascinating. I first read the book um, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell years ago, and a lot of uh, Damasio's research was was in that book too. And so, what would be kind of like uh, like one or two practical tips for people listening? They're like, okay, I I kind of buy with what you're saying. Okay, like what would be something that they could apply both like maybe in the gym or at home? Yeah. So since we're talking about sort of, um, the emotional side and, and recovery, um, heart rate variability is linked to increased emotional resiliency. So the higher our heart rate variability, the greater our emotional resiliency is. And if you want an example of that in action, um, just think about, uh, maybe taking a red eye flight from west coast to the east coast and not getting enough sleep or if you're a new parent and you didn't get enough sleep before or, or any day where you didn't get great sleep the night before uh, we know that that would in an acute way decrease our hrv but we also know that on those days we're going to be a little bit more irritable uh, a little bit more edgy and our sort of bandwidth to be able to deal with stuff will be diminished. And, and that's what emotional resiliency is. It's your bandwidth to, uh, to deal with things and, and to make good decisions. So, you know, in, in the long run, you know, the greater we can keep our, uh, the higher our vagal tone, the higher our heart rate variability, you know, the greater our emotional resiliency is. So it, it's really interesting, you know, if you're somebody who's into, you know, tracking that to sort of start to look at, well, how did I feel and, and how did I, um, you know, how was my decision-making process on those days where HRV was lower? Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I find that too. And obviously I've done a lot of stuff on HRV. So for people listening, it's just a way of measuring the autonomic nervous system. So we've got, like Brian mentioned, the parasympathetic side, which is like the brake or they call vagal tone. So if I step on the brake harder, my car is going to slow down. Or the gas pedal, so you step on the, the sympathetic side, the car is going to go a little bit faster. Um, one kind of question we'll wrap up and then I'll ask uh, Lonnie and uh, Phil's opinion on this too is one thing I've always thought too is that if you have uh, better heart rate variability, so you're a little bit more on the parasympathetic side, but yet when you go to the gym or something that's maybe a high sympathetic thing, you want the ability to still have that output. But then as soon as you're done, you kind of want that ability to transition back to being sort of rest and recovered. And some of the people I see with clients that have the hardest time are people who are always kind of sympathetically on, like they're always just kind of stretched, like they can't really seem to downshift. And even talking to other coaches and stuff too, like at a, an elite level, like especially with some hockey players, the a coach buddy of mine, he'll look at him and say like, yep, that guy will probably make it two to three years in the NHL because he just can never downshift into that parasympathetic tone where some other players are just as good. But as soon as they're done, they can kind of get into that rest and relaxation and they appear to have a much longer career. 
Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's it's very uh, it's, it's it's cool that he can spot that and, and see that. But I think it's a it's a very important thing, you know, when we talk about the longevity of of anything that we want to pursue. I mean, most of us may not be uh, playing professional sports, but you know, in in business or in our own lifting careers, you know, whatever the thing is that we do, you know, our our ability to kind of flip that switch on and off. Uh, is is really crucial. Um, you know, the more time we spend in that parasympathetic state, the higher the vagal tone, as you said, and and you know, the greater our overall health is. There there's so many studies that show you know high HRV or high vagal tone. Um, you know, we can use those kind of synonymously, but there's you know tremendous benefit for you know improved health and and improved biomarkers. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think. Um, you know, even something as simple as just slowing down and, and focusing on breath or breathing, um, you know, which is, I think we're starting to see a lot of that in programming now. Uh, at least I have seen some of that where people are just building that into sort of the cool down uh, to help people uh, with recovery and to, to turn that switch off and get into that parasympathetic state faster or sooner. Very cool. Do you do anything with your lifters, Phil, in terms of trying to work on those transitions or is it something that just kind of sort of happens on its own uh, no i mean definitely like meat days and things like that i mean the best lifters that i've seen are you have to be able to detach and relax you know especially you powerlifting meat olympic lifting meat's a little different because you're kind of up and out pretty quick yeah. but a powerlifting day is you know it could be eight it's nine hours yeah it's a day <laughs> so i mean you, you might squat and then you got three hours before you go again and Man. you just can't stay up uh, the whole time. And when you see it, you see those athletes that do try to do that yeah. come, come deadlift time, they're done. Yeah. Um, and even days before the meet, uh, you just can't be at that point. It's over. You know, the, the stress is done. The training's the stress and you got to get athletes to really relax and just, uh, you know, work on that. Like I just go hide in a room and go to sleep and watch TV. <laughs> and my athletes know I do that. It's like, leave me alone. I'm just gonna, but I'm, I'm pretty relaxed coming up to a meet. Um, by that point, I've I've played the meet over as well. Like, I was explaining this to an athlete the other day, um, the one that's going to the Arnold, and you know she's looking to clean and jerk a hundred kilo, and it was like you should have. If it was me, I've already done that for sixteen weeks. You know, every mm -hmm. time I go in there, I'm not like I squatted six fifty or six seventy five the other week. My goal is seven fifty here in April. I wasn't squatting six seventy five. I was squatting seven fifty. So by the time I get there to the meet, I've already done it a hundred times, you know, yeah. and it's just a mental twist. Um, and I don't, I, part of it comes to training. Like I, I don't allow misses. We try to never miss and things like that, which helps, um, and just build up your confidence. If, if that's all you ever do is win by the time you get to the meet, that's kind of all you ever know. So, uh, yeah. it's little, little things like that. Just getting them to relax and just get your head on your side. I mean, yeah, that's what I call the, the positive side of neuroplasticity, right? Yeah. You're, literally embedding those pathways in your brain to the only thing you know is making the lift. Yeah. And if you're missing lifts all the time, man, you're doing the opposite, right? You're just embedding those pathways into the wrong direction. So, yeah, I mean, like I've seen that a bunch of times, like somebody's trying to their first 315 squat and they've, they come to me and like, uh, yeah, I've tried 315 like 27 times and I've missed oh. it. They're already beat, you know, by the yeah. time they try it again, that's all they're thinking about is God, what if I miss this again? 
Yep. Um, yeah, you got to come to a lift and just uh, if, if you're doubting it, there's a really good chance you're going to miss it. If you come to a lift and you're confident, like I'm going to crush this thing, there's a really good chance you will. Even if I've seen lifts where people are like they physically shouldn't be able to do it, but they just <laughs> believe enough that they do it. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Any thoughts, Lonnie? I know you've talked about cooling your jets after training and you know writing in your your journal and how reflecting on how training went. Yeah, I think uh, it, keeping this as evidence based as possible, right? There's something called the TQR model, total quality yeah. recovery model. Um, some of the researchers like Ken Ta and Kelman. Um, there's a book called Enhancing Recovery. It's a textbook, but it's one of the few textbooks. When I bought it, I read it cover to cover. Um, and there's a lot of questionnaires and, you know, trying to get at people's mood. But to your point about positive side of neuroplasticity, it looks at an athlete like a business and coaches so often they spend the athlete's resources. You know, it's their job. They apply the stimulus, but they don't do much proactively on the cool your jet side, you know, naps or stretching, meditation, uh, you know, sauna, proactive things to put back the resources that you spent. And so when you're when you're in the red, thinking like an accountant, you know, you're below zero for more than three days in a row, you're going stale. You're gonna underperform. You know, it's that so that whole recovery model and treating your nervous system and treating an athlete like a business, uh, it, it, I think it, it kind of keeps a, a coach cognizant that you're not your job isn't only to expend more resources. You know, so many mm -hmm. times in like um, NCAA athletics, if a team underperforms, the automatic assumption of many coaches is we're out of shape. We're going to run more laps when yeah. you know when if they're late season, what they need more than that is probably two days off, you know, or mm -hmm. something proactive, not just time off doing. Nothing, although that, that can help too. But like I said, proactive things, massage and all, you know, hot, cold contrast baths, anything that's purposeful, like self-care. Uh, my wife and I often talk about like in behavior mod that when she works with patients, uh, you know, they use talk therapy, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. But I think we need to recognize that our brain chemistry, our body chemistry with the crosstalk with the gut and everything else, the, the amount of caffeine you're consuming, your sleep or whatever else, Sometimes I, I've used the analogy, it's like trying to plant flowers in a spoiled garden. You know, they're using talk therapy to get changes, but the person is not in a good state. And yeah. so back to the like the coffee thing that we were talking about earlier, that's one of the projects that we're doing now. And Mike, you, you know, because we consulted you on this, but we're looking at stimulant intake and your HRV. You know, is yeah. that something that's dropping your HRV and driving you so sympathetic that, you know, you're, you're full of anxiety and you can't relax and, you know what I mean? So I, I, it sounds a little hippy-dippy, but it's it's so holistic. I mean, neuroendocrinology is a thing. You know, the gut-brain crosstalk is a thing. And I don't think we can assume automatically that our emotions and the decisions we make are 100% under our, our control, like, you know, our control. There are these other influences and you need to set the stage. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show here today, Ryan. We greatly appreciate it. And where can people find out more information about you and your upcoming book? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. This has been a blast. Um, the book is, like I said, it's called Fuck Your Feelings, and uh, it's available on Amazon. 
Um, personal website is ryanmuncie.com and I am limiting my social media to just Instagram. I'm trying not to be on every platform. Uh, so it is at Ryan Muncie with an underscore after the Ryan Muncie. And the new podcast is The Better Human Project. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. Yes, thanks. All right. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.